And we are live. Welcome to episode 3095 of the Survival Podcast. It did rhyme, but that's just by happenstance. Uh, we're going to have a good episode today. Yesterday, we uh, we did some inspirational stuff. We also dug deep into the doom and gloom of the future that awaits us and how dystopian it is. We dug into the mind of uh, Ted Kaczynski, which is a scary place to go. And it's also quite accurate uh, in in many ways as well, despite what you may have been told. But it was a dark episode don't really care for doing them I, I know i need to but don't really care for doing them i wanted to do something then today that built on yesterday but was 100 percent positive and something stuck in my head and that thing that stuck in my head let me adjust this mic to make sure you guys get good audio for me that thing that stuck in my head was i said something yesterday along the lines of 99 percent is a guarantee until you bet your life on it or somebody else's. Then it's not a guarantee anymore. And I can't give you 100% on anything. That was kind of the point. But what I can do is I can up your percentile of success in any given area, especially if you're going to depend on it. So today we're going to talk about gardening, growing our own food. We're going to talk about doing it with wicking beds. And the reason I wanted to bring this up with this whole concept of, you know, everything's so guaranteed, you know, 90% to guarantee until you, you know, you bet your life on it or your life savings on it or something like that. And it put, what it does is it puts in perspective. There's no guarantees in life. You are not even guaranteed that tomorrow morning you will wake up. You're not. You could end up in a coma or dead. It's just the way the world works. It's sobering, but it's reality. So what we have to do <clears throat> is we have to play the odds. And this is why when we end up in kind of a dark area in our life and have to make a medical decision, for instance, in the end, you know, as long as we're not dealing with somebody that's following the protocol for COVID, uh, we'll say to a doctor, give me the odds. Give me the odds. I have a cancer. What are the odds of me surviving it without treatment? What are the odds of me surviving it being it with treatment? What are the odds of surviving uh, with treatment and surgery? And then we do our best based on those odds. And in any place where we can therefore increase our odds of success, that's the best that we can do. And when it comes to gardening, I want to be clear today. I'm not saying if you have a successful in-the-ground garden, get rid of it. I'm not. And I'm not suggesting that everything that we grow should be grown in a wicking bed. But I'm going to tell you the truth. If you put some effort into putting in enough wicking beds, there's no reason a family of two or four can't grow just about everything that they can reliably use with it. I wouldn't try to do a small farm based on all wicking beds or even 50% wicking beds. They do become cost prohibitive if you try to, uh, to build too many of them. They cost more, but they cost more once and they work forever. There's tremendous advantages with them. And that's what we are going to dig into today. There's some uh, chatter, um, in the, uh, in the chat room here because I was talking to people before we got online and I wanted to give you guys a way to tip me if you like what you're hearing from me that doesn't involve uh, super chat fees to YouTube. And I have no problem with those. I mean, they provide a service. I'm talking to you on YouTube. I don't mind them taking a piece. But recently I had somebody tip me, for instance, and she emailed me later and said, Did you, do you hate money, Jack? You always say not to do that. And apparently YouTube, for some reason, reversed the transaction and sent her 10 bucks back. 
Like, no, I don't hate money. I would have kept your money. So one way you can tip me is on Lightning. And uh, I want to actually be able to put up some way where you guys can directly tip me on the screen. Uh, I'll put this up for you guys right now. Uh, this is kind of interesting. You actually can use this to tip me on Lightning. But as you can see, it covers my whole face. And wait a minute, I'll have to go take that banner down for it to work. I wanted to put that QR code up there where the TSP logo is. And when it's that small, it won't work. But if you wanted to tip me on Lightning, you could do that. But what I thought was even uh, funnier is that when you use Wallet of Satoshi, they uh, they give you an email address. You don't get to pick it. And this is what the chatter is about. I, I, I'm wondering if somebody will tip me just to see if it really works. If you do, let me know in the chat, and I'll, I'll check on the phone in real time. Um, they give you an email address that you can use instead of a QR code or a Lightning invoice uh, number. And mine is beefypersian37 at walletofsatoshi.com. I'm not even kidding, right? If you guys want to tip me on lightning during this instead of using Super Chats, I appreciate it. Anybody can do that at any time. I will have a way by the end of the week where you can go to a real quick web URL. And if you want to use any type of crypto to tip me, you'll be able to, especially lightning. But we're not on about crypto today. We're on about wicking beds, and that's what we're going to dig into deeply today. Uh, before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. And so I don't get wrong who they are. Let me look over here at the other screen. Backwoods Home Magazine, guys. Been, been reading Backwoods Home Magazine since 1993. I remember I was a kid and somebody, there were some, still some guys around that were born in the 1800s, right? And they sound like they're so old. We're all going to be people. Well, many of us are going to be people that can say back in 1900-72, right? Like in the future. Anyway. I digress. I have been reading Backwoods Home since 1993. I've been a subscriber since 94. I'll stay a subscriber as long as they're around. If you check them out, you'll see why. Backwoodshome.com, great source of information and wisdom on everything prepping and homesteading and stuff like that. Next up today, and I have the wrong sponsor. It says Ridge Wallet in my notes. That's wrong. I know we did them yesterday. Let me look up who it's supposed to be. And uh, it'll take a second for this to load over here. I know who it's supposed to be. It ain't it ain't Ridge Wall. It's supposed to be ButcherBox. Yeah, I don't know how I screwed that up. Anyway, ButcherBox is a great way to have uh, pastured poultry, pastured pork, grass-fed beef, really great seafood and other stuff shipped right to your door. I like them so much. I don't even take money from them, not because I hate money, because I like meat. They send me a big box of meat. Uh, at the value of my sponsorship costs every month. And they're the only sponsor I have I take product and barter for. I would do it with some others, but they're the ones that were willing to do it and had something that's a uh, high enough dollar that it actually works out. Check them out today. You'll see why. Uh, butcherbox.com. MSB members, if you sign up without going to your MSB uh, back office first and getting your discount code, you hate money because that will save you $120 a year just on one discount on the membership. All right. With that, let's go ahead and uh, dig on into the subject today. Again, I, I wanted to do this because I know so many of you, so many of you are looking to start growing your own food or increase growing your own food. And when the motivation of growing your own food is I want better food, better quality food, I think it's fun, I want a hobby, I want to learn how to do it, etc., then failure is just part of the process. It's not that big of a deal. It really isn't. When I want to grow my own food because I'm worried that we're going to need supplemental food to feed our family, 
and you're working 60 hours a week or something like that. And, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Pennsylvania, we had really fertile soil. My grandfather had taken care of the land for since before my dad was ever born. Um, he was retired and I was a kid that did whatever the hell his grandfather said. It was easy to maintain that garden. When you live in suburbia, you only have a small area for your garden. You're new to doing all this stuff and you're, you're not so sure about it. Um, failure is, uh, is a real possibility. And can I guarantee you if you do a wicking bed, you won't fail? No. Can I guarantee you that your odds of success, especially when you're in a low maintenance mode with your garden are higher with a wicking bed? Absolutely, positively, absolutely yes. And that's all we're going to talk about. So let's start off with what in the world is a wicking bed? For those that don't even know that, a wicking bed is any kind of container like my awesome coffee cup here that says I am not responsible for what my face does while you talk. Let's pretend that's a wicking bed. It's full of hollow roast coffee right now. Well, let's say that it's filled up about, oh, 20% of the way with gravel or sand or pipe or something. We'll get more in onto that in a bit. And then we have some sort of layer that separates those two so that soil doesn't get down into there. And then we have a loose, friable soil that goes up to about the top. And then we have a way to fill the bottom with more water. And we have a way for if it gets too full for the water to come back out. In short, that's the basics of a wicking bed. And what it does is exactly what it says it does. It wicks water from the subsurface up to the surface. So it minimizes water use. And if we, if we operate and maintain it properly, the big thing is our plants never go under stress from either too much water or too little water. And it gives us an optimum environment to develop a soil food web. I'm going to be giving you my whole soil fertility uh, program today. And I'll talk about how I don't even use all of it anymore because some of it's a one-time application. Some of it is you build up the life web in the soil. And if you're adding compost, you don't really worry so much in your third, fourth, and fifth years about mycorrhizal fungi anymore because they live in there. And since we never have that soil ever dry out, it never becomes hydrophobic, we never kill off the soil food web, well, even if we knock it down with a trick I'm going to give you, which we shouldn't do all the time, but we can sometimes, a little bit later, all we get is more and more fertility. And we get stress-free plants. Now, there's a lot of stuff you can still do with your plants to kill them. You dump acid on them, they're going to die. They get too much sun, they're going to die. They don't get enough sun, they're going to get leggy. That doesn't solve all the problems, but it solves the biggest two problems. One, drought. There is no drought in a waking bed. Two, gardeners who do not understand that you can also overwater your garden. Because even if we water from the surface when we're, when we're getting our seeds to sprout until they get their roots down a little bit, that water, since we're having soil that will wick, it's also soil that will drain. It will drain to the reservoir and overflow. So it's like a, a magic trick to prevent you from killing your plants, either with abuse or kindness, at least in regard to moisture. That's why wicking beds rock. They fix the one thing I can't do for you as a designer, you. You know, there's a dude, Caesar, whatever his name is, Caesar Milan, I guess is like, whatever his last name is, Dog Whisperer. He said, I don't train dogs, I train people. There's no such thing as a bad dog, there's a bad dog owner. 
And that's the thing. You can do all this great stuff with permaculture design. You could actually draw out a great design for somebody, give it to them. And if they lie to you and you say, well, how many hours a week do you want to spend working on your permaculture? And they say 15 and they really mean five. You put all these swales in that require some level of maintenance so things don't overgrown. Two years later saying, you're a terrible designer. My shit's all overgrown. I know why. You didn't maintain your chop and drop and things like that, right? That happens. So wicking beds, as long as they're set up right, as long as we do some things maybe to automate the watering process, we're not going to overwater, we're not going to underwater, and we've taken one of the biggest reasons we have failure out of the equation, throw a little bit of fertility in there, plant the right things, harvest, weed, maintain, little bit of effort, we're in a good position. Also, since it's a wicking bed, Unless we make it look like a standard low-to-the-ground raised bed, and there's a way to do that. We'll talk about it later if that's just what you need. Generally speaking, they're kind of lifted up. And anything about waist height means I don't have to bend my old ass over and hurt my back. And that means not only don't I have to do it, I'm going to be better about pulling weeds, staying on top of things, harvesting things, and noticing things. Wicking beds rock for all these reasons. So, The first thing I want to talk about with your wicking bed, because this is the number one question I get, well, how do I make my soil, right? How do I make my soil? Well, the way you make your soil is you trust you. I just told you you suck. I know, right? I said you're going to water too much or not water enough or forget to water. I'm going to fix that. But the reality is human beings, we have an intuition for most things that are simple to understand anyway. I don't have an intuition for how to synthesize a methyl alkaloid, but I have an intuition for what good, friable, loose soil looks like, feels like, and smells like. So we're going to start off right from the beginning. I'm going to give you this 50-50 ratio. You don't have to use it. And then everything else I'm going to say is going to be trust your instincts. If I tell you how to make soup, And I say to use a big handful of parsley, and you don't have parsley, make the soup anyway. All right? Don't get no parsley syndrome. So I like to start with a 50-50 mix of soil and compost. That's that's my starting point. We are not putting in a 50-acre farm. We can afford to do this here. And I would prefer compost that I make. If I don't have that, I want compost from a well-known source that's not using icky gick in their stuff. And then if I can't get that, I will resort to using bag compost. But that's my last choice. There is some risk with that, with some persistent herbicide or something being in there. But I'll tell you how to test it. Anytime you're going to, you know, get a, get something from a new source that you're not sure about, put yourself a little pot where you know things will grow in it, right? a little bit of potting soil or something. Take that mulch or compost or whatever it is and soak it in water for a couple days. Plant some beans in the pot that you have sitting over here and water that pot with the water from you're making compost tea, mulch tea, whatever. We're going to do this because if there's any persistent herbicides in there, a bean or a pea will not grow worth shit. It'll look, and I don't mean this in the way we insult people with sometimes. I mean this in the proper use of the word. It will look retarded as in its growth will be retarded, and you will know um, you will know how to deal with it. That's always this totally off topic, but Brian said he tried to lightning tip through Exodus and got a fail. 
Uh, it could be two things. One, Exodus will not support the uh, email address, as far as I know. Two, you need to be in the lightning side of it if you're going to use the uh, the QR code that I had up earlier in the video. We'll fix all this later. We're going to do some training on how to use lightning. That way I can get tips, but you guys learn how to use lightning as well. Um, but anyway, we're going to just mix that 50-50 mix, and it's approximate. Okay, but again, you can take any any component that you're not sure about the the safety of the source with herbicides. And I'm, I don't care what Paul Wheaton says. I love Paul. Just spent a weekend with him. Great dude. Great presenter. Funny as shit. Not all uh, commercial compost and mulch has persistent herbicides in it, or nobody would be able to grow anything. And if you put a legume in something and water it with that, it will get this weird, funky, non-growing right way to it to make sure that you're right, use a scientific method, which we don't talk about much anymore, because then my science wouldn't be as simple as saying follow my science. But you need two pots, and you grow in one, and you water with regular water, and the other, you put them right next to each other, same soil mix in them, uh, if you're going to do this experiment. And if they both grow the same, you can't blame the compost or the mulch. All right, so we got our 50-50 mix. Now we're going to lighten our 50-50 mix. We want it to be really light and friable. We want to pick it up and want it to just kind of crumble in our hands and feel all nice. So what we're going to use for that is two things spring to mind, and there's probably other things you can use, but perlite or expanded shale. Where I live, I'm lucky I can get both of them in, in fairly large amounts cheap. I just bought two bags of, I think it was three cubic foot of perlite. Like, I don't know exactly how big they were, but they're, like this high off the ground and like that big around, and the two bags together were 75 bucks. That's a lot of perlite. Do not buy perlite in them little bitty bags at Walmart, or you hate money. Don't hate money. And then expanded shale, if you have a materials company anywhere near you, find out if they have it. It'll sound expensive till you realize how much a cubic yard is. A place down the road a few miles from me sells a cubic yard of expanded shale, for uh, $90, and they will sell you a half yard. That's 45 bucks. That's a lot of expanded shell. Again, we're not spreading it out on a golf course. Either one of those, and how much? I don't know. Trust your instincts. I use the big uh, food scoops, feed scoops, from uh, for, that I use for my animals for, to scoop their feed into the feeders. Big ones about yay big for those watching the thing. And I usually do my mixing in a wheelbarrow because it makes it really easy or the, the little cart that I put on the back of my tractor. And I put about 50-50 of the soil and compost. But you know what? I'm not really counting shovelfuls. I just kind of do it by eye. Shovel, a shovel, a shovel, a shovel makes mixing it easier. When I get enough where I can still mix without spilling it everywhere, I take and throw a couple scoops of either the shell or the perlite in it, and I mix it till it's even, and I feel it. And when it feels nice and loose and friable, but not overly so, I'm like, okay, that's good. And then that's the soil mix, and we'll use like we'll give you the stages of making the the wicking bed here in a minute. Um, another thing that I use a lot, and I think it has a lot of advantages behind beyond just loosening the soil for organic matter, for growing beneficial fungi, etc. I will scoop up a whole bunch of leaves and run over with the lawn tractor or push mower. And then I'll just take a few big handfuls of that and mix that into my mix as well. That's kind of a secret sauce. You're getting all kinds of native fungi. 
and native beneficial bacteria and stuff like that. You'll find there's not a lot of pathogens in loose, friable, you know, dried out leaves. How much? Again, just a couple big handfuls per wheelbarrow is what I generally do. And I mix that up and I kind of feel it again and go, yeah, that's, that's what I'm looking for. Now I'm going to talk about the bottom of the wicking bed later, but for right now, when I fill that up, especially if I've used perlite and I almost always use perlite, if I want the soil level about, you know, say this high for those watching it, I'm going to go about two inches below that level with how high I fill it up. I'm not going to fill it all the way up to the top for the soil level with the perlite. Do you know why? I don't have time to wait on the lag. Many of you probably do. If you've ever filled up a pot, if you've ever filled, my QR invoice is expired. Damn it. You have to use, we'll, we'll fix this guys later on. Anyway, um, <laughs> again, you can, you can email your tips to beefy Persian, whatever the hell it is. Um, on Wallace Satoshi receive. Let me see what it is again. Lightning address. Beefy Persian 37 at walletofsatoshi.com or you're welcome to super chat me until I get this stuff squared away for you guys. I'm still learning lightning myself. Um, but you, you're going to leave that about two inches from the top without perlite. Then you're going to take your 50-50 mix of compost and soil and you're going to top it with that. And the reason you're going to do it, any of you who have ever... Um, had a flower pot full of potting soil. When you know what happens when you water it, all the freaking perlite floats to the top and it's kind of fiddly pain in the ass. If you cap it without it, your plants are just fine and will get the wicking action and the friability below there that we're looking for. If you're using the leaves in there, go ahead and use them in the top part. Then we're going to mulch on top of that and then we're going to plant. If you're doing something like lettuce and you're sowing lettuce, and you're sowing it where you're going to like basically carpet bomb your seed and make cutting lettuces where you're going to have like a baby lettuces and greens, don't mulch it. Don't mulch it. It's okay. What you're going to do is you're going to put it down and sprinkle soil over it and then water from the top until everybody sprouts. And, you know, if you've already mulched and you want to switch to lettuce, pull all your mulch out of the way, maybe push it in the pile and do it like that and bring it back over when you switch to another crop. And you're going to do rotational crops with these because you're going to be able to extend your growing season a great deal by using them. Um, again, don't buy your perlite in the tiny bags and don't stress over the amount of the soil lightener. Trust yourself. You're smarter than you think you are. Um, I want to talk about some different options for wicking beds. Basically, you have large, rigid containers. One of my favorite, and they are expensive, but it's a great amount of space for growing, 100-gallon Rubbermaid stock tanks. They already have a place for a bulkhead to fit into the bottom. And the beautiful thing about wicking beds is if we make them level, we can fill one and fill all. Okay, we can fill one and fill all because the water's going to come up to the same level. And we can even change our overflow points in them, and we can still fill one and fill all because all our lower ones will overfill lower and the top one will overfill higher. So we can, we can still do that. You got to get into some, a little bit of engineering to do it that way. But yeah, we can also use one outflow point, fill them all at the same level all the way across. There's a lot of ways we can do this. So we can use large rigid containers. That means we can build a box and drop a pond liner in it and make a wicking bed. Uh, we can use any sort of stock tank. We can use any large thing that is water, watertight. 
Uh, I've built them out of the, the, the big square, um, fiberglass things I have that were used to be used to feed, uh, molasses to cattle. I've never found any more of them other than the one source we found, but maybe you can find those. And yeah, you can cut an IBC in half and make two really big, basically four by four wicking beds. It's a very economical way to go, by the way. So that's, that's, uh, test that's your way to beefy Persian. Let's see if I, let's, I should stop doing this right now. Two minutes ago, somebody sent me 30,000 sats, about nine bucks. I guess that was you. Uh, thanks a lot for that. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks a lot. That was awesome. Anyway, um, that's distracting me. I'm not going to talk anymore about lightning today. Self-watering planters are a type of wicking bed. So whether the ones you buy in a store that are a, a pot with its own little re- reservoir in it or you're you know, nesting one five-gallon bucket in another. Any of those are a form of wicking bed. I'm just going to tell you, though, I've found that going smaller with wicking beds is not, in my opinion, very productive. Five-gallon buckets, for instance, are cheap, but how many buckets do you need nesting one inside the other and all your little fiddling around to equate one hundred gallon rubbermaid tub that will last for the rest of your life. And we all know five gallon buckets are awesome, but if they're exposed to the sunlight, they become brittle over time and break. So I'm a big believer in buy once, cry once. Uh then the other option is going in into the ground. And you can make garden beds that look exactly like your typical four by eight or four by sixteen or four by four, you know, boxed raised bed we just dig into the ground which is great we take that soil mix it with compost to make our wicking material drop a pond liner below the wood frame and do our dividers and we can do that i've never built one it seems like a pain in the ass to me and as y'all know i can't really dig a hole so i don't really see the point um i like to use the rigid container method but i don't care how you do it as long as you get a reservoir a divider a way to fill, a way to overflow, and loose friable soil up to the plants that you're on. Um, then you have some options. And there's two primary ways to do this. And one is what, what I call a flow-through wicking bed. As far as I know, myself and my good friend David invented this together. And we came up with several variations thereof. I have never seen anybody else do this. Unless they said, I did this because I saw what you do. And a flow-through wicking bed simply means that somewhere I have a reservoir. In my case, it's usually a pond. It does not have to be a pond, a true pond. But somewhere we have a tank full of water. We have a pump in the tank full of water. We pump water into the wicking beds, and when we get too much water in the wicking beds, it overflows back into the reservoir. Just let it be that for now. Don't worry about aquaponics, aquatics, whatever. That's a flow through. In now we got to go back to aquaponics, aquatics. In those systems where we're raising fish, since it makes a great biofilter, there are some systems we've set up to be a continuous flow through, meaning that pump runs all the time or a significant period of time during the day, and it's constantly running water through the system. This actually sets up more potential for a point of failure. I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it gone for this episode. You just know you can do it if you have a reason and you know why you're doing it. My preferred method of a flow-through wicking bed is I have a little timer. It's eight bucks. That timer once a day, or if you're in some higher need environment, maybe twice a day, turns on. 
It acts that way. It's flowing through and overflowing to your reservoir for 15 minutes. That's long enough in just about any situation to top up your wicking bed. Remember, except for the first time you fill them up, you don't need that much. If you have seven inches of water in the bottom of your wicking bed, and in a really hot day in the summer, that water goes down one inch, you only got to bring it up one inch. So we bring the water up. It run, It's just, I don't think if the timer had an option to run for two minutes, I would do it. That way, it's set and forget. 15 minutes is going to be long enough. If you had a bunch of wicking beds in a single level line and a really itty-bitty pump, and 15 minutes was not enough to be reliable, set it for 30 or set it to go off at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. so that you don't go 24 hours before you have to resupply and you'll be fine. So that's my favorite is the flow-through model because it can be automated. And then there's what's known as a static. And a static is, by some means, you fill it up whenever it's too low. And you can automate it or you can do it manually. Manually is a garden hose. Manually is tell your kid to go do it. And manually is when things sometimes don't happen. Now, I have some beds that are still manual. I'm thinking about translocating them, so I haven't automated them yet. Because if I'm going to translocate them, it doesn't make sense to do it. Um, almost except for that one system, all my other wicking beds are on an automated system, either continuous flow through or time flow through. There's another way to automate. If you have a well or city water or any source of water that has pressure, you can put a float valve into your wicking bed or in one wicking bed in a series. And when the water comes down, you just constantly top right back to where you are until your float valve fails. I don't hate float valve-based systems. I think they make a lot of sense. You can even make a little float valve. If you look at uh, Dr. Kratke's work with Kratke Hydroponics, you can use the same principle. you got a little bitty out external float valve sitting in a little tiny dish sitting at the height he wants all of his tanks to be, and that one little bitty float valve made out of, like, an old aspirin bottle. You can do it that way instead of buying one if you want. Maintains a whole system. Again, until it fails. The flow-through timed model has never failed me yet. And if it does, what happens is the timer over time breaks. I keep an extra one on the shelf. I check my timers you know, here and there. You have a buffer since this is a wicking bed. If it doesn't run for a day or two, you're going to be okay. You go out, you check your beds, you look in, the water level's lower than it's supposed to be. You check your timer, yeah, timer's jammed up. The little timers I recommend, I'll make sure there's a link in the notes today. They're plastic. They're made by a company called Century. Sometimes they get kind of sticky. Take some WD-40, squirt it around the dial, turn it a few times. It'll usually work for another year. If it's not going to work for you, you can manually turn it on until you get another one or keep one on the shelf. They're eight bucks. Pull, plung, one, tick down one, uh, one of the pins, set the time, plug it in, walk away from it. This is why I really, really like this approach. And we have a question here that I've started for later. Yes, questions in all caps, please, at least first three words. That way I will mark them for follow-up. And I'm marking another all caps things. Now, if you want to ask a question or comment, you want me to comment on something, all caps. So that is your flow-through versus your static versus your static with a float valve. Obviously, I prefer the flow-through for a reason. Now, 
Keys to good design. Number one, you want to use what I call a media excluder. A media excluder is a fancy name for something that keeps dirt out of the way of how your water gets in and or out of your container. Keeps dirt away. It keeps sand, gravel, anything that's going to get in the way. And usually it's just a big pipe. You can use a sprinkler box, whatever you want, but you want it to be big enough that when, not if, something goes wrong, like your overflow pot clogs up, you can stick your little hand down in there and pull stuff out of it. I want to give you a warning right now. In most of the United States of America, we have a spider known as a black widow. You're not, I mean, odds of you dying if you get bit by one are very, very low, but the odds of you having an unhappy experience are pretty damn high. They like dark, cool, wet places. You need a flashlight, okay? You you need a flashlight so that when you are going to stick your little paw down in something like that, this is aquaponics, hydro, anything that has a dark, deep down place that stays moist, make sure you look in there. And a widow web is really easy to identify. Yeah, someone's going to say we have brown recluses. We do. Um, they are not anywhere near as likely to be in there, though. Black widows. In my experience on my property, they love places like this, and we have quite a few of them. And I don't kill them. I, I really don't. But if they're in a place like that, I'm going to put a glove on or something to do what I got to do, and, and hopefully we'll all get along. And if I've never killed one, but if I guess if I had one in a place where it was uh, a real potential problem, I'd get rid of it. I had a picture a few years ago. One lived in my garage. Everybody's freaking out. Like I don't know. I've lived around them my whole life, and I don't even know anybody that's ever been bit by one. Uh, and the only ones I've heard about people being bit are people that molest the spider in some way. Uh, just be aware of that. So you want that media excluder to be able to get your hand in there comfortably and deal with it. And again, we're just talking about a bigger piece of pipe than the pipe that's going in or the pipe that's coming out. Uh, next, you're going to want to make sure that you separate your bottom reservoir, which is where your water sits, from your top soil mixture we already talked about. There's a lot of ways to do this. If you look up wicking beds on YouTube, you'll find tons of them. I agree with all of them, except I've never seen anybody doing the flow-through system like I do. But the way I've been doing it that's worked the best for me many years ago, Nick Ferguson told me just put down two inches of perlite. It'll be a good separator, and it'll wick plenty of moisture up into your bed. And I thought, well, it's cheap, and that'll work. And I did it, and it worked. But what it didn't do was a really good job of preventing the roots from more aggressive plants and getting down into the reservoir itself. This is what I do now. I get the good, you know, 25-year warranty that they know they'll never have to, to fulfill because you won't ever keep it that long anyway. Uh, but they'll, they'll, they'll get, you get the good weed blocker and you cut it and you slide it down over. So you put your gravel and sand and pipes in the bottom. We'll get to in a second. You have your media excluders already in place. You slide your weed blocker down on top of them, and then you put two inches of perlite, and then you put your soil mixture. I've dug them up with the weed blocker, without the weed blocker, with only the weed blocker and no perlite, and with the perlite and the weed blocker. I've reformatted them, and that's always a chance to learn. Weed blocker and perlite have worked best. The only thing I've ever put in a wicking bed that got through that into the reservoir is comfrey. And I did that just to see if it would, and the answer is yes. So we're going to do that. We are going to allow for overflow. 
Even if you're not going and doing a flow through, you need a point that says, thy water shall not go higher than this. Because if you do, you will flood your bed and kill your plants. We're going to talk about how to use that to your advantage later. But we need a point where water can get out. I don't care if it's a manual thing you made with some buckets. You're going to water it with a can, and it gives you two days instead of one day between waterings. You need an overflow point because it can rain, because your kid can overwater it, because you can space out while you're listening to a podcast watering, and you can overwater it. So you need an overflow point. Your overflow level, this is something I don't see any, this is another thing I don't see any other people teaching this do. It needs to be adjustable. Adjustable. The way I do it with my, here's an example anyway, my 100 gallon uh, stock tanks. You have a point where the water overflows and it comes out back to go into the reservoir or tank. And I have a pipe on the outside rather than the inside. The inside The overflow can be all the way at the bottom if you want it to. And that outside pipe sets the level. So all I got to do is take, let's say, a coupler for the same size PVC pipe, stick it on there. I just made the water level come up an inch. I take a two-inch piece of pipe, put it in there. I just made the water level come up three inches higher. Why? I'll tell you in a second. I want it to go down. If I if I dry fit the pipe, all I have to do is tilt it over an inch, and the water is going to be an inch lower. This way I can control in any tank, including tanks in a series, the height of the water for the individual tank. I can also do this inside my media excluder with the pipe that's down in there, and I do that on some of my other systems. So I want to hold, let's say, two extra inches of water early on in the season when I just put seeds down or small plants so the soil's moist higher in the system. I just reach in that media excluder with a one-inch or two-inch piece of pipe stuck in a, in a collar, and I stick it in there. Plants start to do well. They start to put roots down. I reach down in, pull it off. You know, I want to so pull the pipe out, stick the collar back in. There's a lot of ways to do this. I'll be going over this in-depth with pictures and diagrams in my upcoming course that's on aquatics, but it'll apply to wicking beds as well. Um, but have a way. And there's probably ways I haven't even thought of yet. Have a way to change that level because you can bring that level really high, throw some lettuce seed on it, toss some light mulch, or just pull back a quarter inch of soil, throw lettuce or carrot or something like that, sprinkle the dirt over it, bring that water level up really high. Now you don't have to sprinkle the top three times a day to keep your seeds moist. And as soon as that starts to come up, you reduce the level And then you keep reducing the level so your roots chase the water down and you develop healthy, strong root systems. So this is one of the magic things that I and David learned over time, and I'm sharing it with you, and I'm telling you no one else teaches this with wicking beds. Uh, next, um, even with everything I just said, most people teach you have your divider. In my case, it's weed blocker and perlite. They teach you to keep your water level down there, below the weed blocker. Wrong answer. Keep your water up into that perlite, and maybe just the gnat-ass hair, even at the mature point of your plants, into the bottom of the soil. This does two things. One, it sets your water level higher. It gives you more battery. You can have a, a, a malfunction, and it takes longer before your plants are really drying out. But two, it makes sure that that entire soil profile stays moist. Next, mulch 
the shit out of the surface unless you're doing like cutting lettuces or something like that. If you have space between your plants, mulch an inch deep at least. This reduces evaporation, and that way, if you have a problem, your battery will last longer and everything stays happier. Your roots stay cooler. That's one of the advantages of wicking beds in general. Um, next, this is going to change if the depth of your container changes. If you're using a shallower container, you're going to have to adapt. But I like to have about six to eight inches of water relative to about 12 to 18 inches of soil. You only need about six inches of soil to effectively grow just about any crop other than a deep root crop. That's all you need. We know that from Mel Bartholomew and his work with square foot gardening. However, if you go too shallow with your soil in a wicking bed, no matter what you do to keep the roots out of your lower level, plants will find a way. They will get in there and they will root bind your reservoir and you'll either have to do some things we'll talk about in a minute and starve everything out and let the roots break down for a cycle or tear it up and rebuild it. So just be careful that you're giving yourself a reasonable topsoil, and I say topsoil, I don't mean the kind you buy. I mean the top end soil system versus the bottom end uh, reservoir system. You want a ratio of no more, I would say, than one-third water and two-thirds your soil mixture. So I've built them, for instance, in 50-gallon stock tanks. They worked. They did not have longevity. It's just, it was just too shallow. But I've also built them with more shallow concrete mixing trays and it worked. What was the difference? I could have made the big 50 gallon tubs work if I had known at the time. When I was doing the 50 gallon tubs, I was doing a constant flow. When you go to a time system, you have a lot less of this problem because even if you get a little bit of roots down in there and binding up, your system only has to deal with it for 15 minutes a day. You don't back things up. You don't flood out the system. And even if you start to get wetter than you want to, when the pump shuts off, since it's such well-draining soil, the level goes back down and everybody's happy again. You see how this works? This is like magic when you get all these little pieces into it the right way. Um, for your reservoir, there's two schools of thought that are primary schools of thought. One is lava rock. The other is sand. I like lava rock over sand. I won't fault you for using sand. What's easier for you to get? What's cheaper for you to get? What do you have more available of? The reason we use sand is it's got a lot of space in between it. If you've ever been to the beach, you dig away the dry sand at the surface. It's like a puddle down there. It's You can make sand castles by drizzling it like icing or something, right? So you got that. But lava rock has more space. So we can have more water in the same space, total gallons. The next thing is lava rock has all those little holes. That's why we like it in aquaponics. That's a good place for good bacteria to live, both for your soil organisms and for your aquatic system if you're doing that. We'll leave that go. The other thing that everybody says do, and I agree, is take some sort of pipe and put it down there. That creates empty spaces for even more water. The coil-up black perforated drain like French drain pipe is probably the best. Uh, also, the thin-walled four-inch pipes, I've done those. You take the length of your your, your grow bed, uh, get a jigs or a chop saw, and just boom, boom, boom. You can bust that out really quick. Throw some slits in it if it's not the perforated kind with the chop saw, and that gives you a nice battery of water. 
Again, that's gotten a lot more expensive with uh, the cost of materials. Uh, PVC has gotten stupid expensive, even the cheap stuff and that coiled-up black stuff. So if you ever come across somebody has that as scrap, take it. Use it. Be a junk man for stuff like that. You'll probably find a use for it. K-Bonk, I'm going to answer your question right now since this is a short one. Are bio balls any good? If you don't know what a bio ball is, don't worry about it. If you want to know, look it up. They're great. They're just expensive relative to the size of the space that we're doing with these larger wicking beds. But I think lava rock will cost you less. I can get lava rock by the yard as well. Uh, even buying it by the bag at like uh, Home Depot or Lowe's. If we're taking, this is the thing, the more space you take up with pipe, the less of the media you need. Right, so I would not fault you for using bio balls. You just may be able to save some money doing something else. Also, scrap pipe. All you guys do, all your PVC, especially when you're doing irrigation projects, you end up with these little pieces of pipe. You throw them in buckets. When you finally realize I'm never going to use that, if some busted shit you broke out and rebuilt, save that for your next project. Just whip it in there. Anything creates space and places for bioorganisms to live are good. Now, here's some tips and tricks I've learned over the years. Again, secret sauce. And no one will tell you, not because they're keeping a secret from you. They all know. I call it the rice paddy method of weed elimination. So remember I said you got to have a way for the water to get out. Remember I said to have a way where the water level can be changed. What you do, turn your timer off if you're on a time pump when you do this so you don't make a mess and drain your reservoir. Cap. Cap your overflow. Keep an eye out for rain in case you know you don't want it making a big mess and overflowing all your soil. Cap your overflow or set it all the way to where it comes to the top. Flood your entire wicking bed for a week or two in the off season. You'll force germinate all weed seeds. You'll rot almost all rhizomes from grasses and things that have gotten in there. You'll kill all your weeds. Put it back, give it a week or two before you plant it so the aerobic system can get running again. And you can get rid of your weeds once a season, once every other season that way. Never have to pull a weed. It'll be like you started all over again from ground zero, except all the work, all the fertility, all the things you've done will stay in there. This is another reason that we don't want to keep that level high. If you're pushing water through and you're keeping water up in your soil column really high, For a long period of time, you're going to wick away your nutrient. Let me go on that. Uh, another thing I've learned, it's not really a trick. It's something that can screw things up for you. If you make manual wicking beds, and again, I have some, and you have a downpipe, take the water in, an overflow pipe on the outside to get the water out, well, you'd think I can just throw a garden hose in there, turn the water on, wait till the water comes out, the outflow pipe, and I've topped up my wicking bed. No. Now, if you are patient, you set the speed of your hose really, really slow, that is true. But what happens when we turn our garden hose full on, stick it in the stand-up pipe, and push water down that pipe into a reservoir? We have a little thing called pressure, and it will actually force water out the overflow long before you've come up. Also, since you didn't time it, and maybe you didn't wait long enough, or you waited too long in between watering, Your soil's dry. So if you, even if you did top it up, what's going to happen? Your soil's going to take the water up and your reservoir level's going to go down. So, a couple things you can do to deal with that. One, water slower. Two, you do what I do. For the ones I'm still doing manual, I go out there, 
Set the water on like medium speed. It's still going to do some push. Fill them all up. Fill them all up. Then go back and water them from the top until they start to trickle overflow and then go to the next one. That's the quickest way to fix when I've screwed up and went away and been too long since I watered in between them. Um, yeah. Anyway, next up, what do we got? I'm off, off here for some reason today. Um, if you use the timers that go once a day, I want you to realize as long as you lift your beds up or take something like a 250 gallon stock tank, Put it in the ground. You don't have to use fish, and it is set it and forget it, and it will not screw up. I said maybe once every three years or so you have to replace a timer. And all you have to do if you don't want to run fish is use mosquito BT dunks or the little, I might even have, I have them right here. I was prepared today like this. People are afraid of this because of the term BT. That means Bacillus fungosus. It is a bacteria. It is harmless to you. I am not worried about the fact that I touch that. I'm going to hurt myself. It is the bubonic plague for a mosquito. I know they say sometimes they say it's BT corn or whatever. I'm not going to get into that today. It has nothing to, this has nothing to do with GMOs. It's not going to hurt anything. And if you have fish, it won't kill your fish either. You put a little bit of this in your system and it will plumb wipe out your mosquitoes. So if you don't want to use fish, you don't have to. That's it. If you were to build some sort of a stand, let's say you had two by four or two by six rails running this way and you had everything leveled and you put a tank underneath it and you want to have some fish there, but you, uh, I'll add a link built by Ross as a link for that. I'll add a link for this stuff. I'll set it right here. So I don't forget to the audio notes later on. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it in just about any garden store or Home Depot, Lowe's, uh, tractor supply, all of that as well. Uh, but I'll add a link for you. But you can absolutely put some like Gambrosia mosquito fish in there or some goldfish in there. And all you need is a little bitty aquarium pump and a couple air stones. And that would actually be good for your wicking beds without going full on aquatics. Because you have high oxygen water and you do have some nutrient and you're not going to have, if you have gambrosia, you're not going to have a mosquito problem. And if it were underneath something like that, maybe down in the ground, it's going to have a lot of temperature stability and you got bait, if nothing else. And, uh, it's going to have a lot of shade from your, your wicking beds. There's a lot of, we're going to go into that kind of design in my course as well. Uh, cause not all aquatics has to be, I'm growing fish to eat. It, there's a lot of ways to do this. I'm just trying to get you thinking in the right direction today, but use BT dunks or bits to control mosquitoes. I actually have these in my, the reason it's not like I was well prepared. I was lying to you. I can't lie. Not long term anyway. So I have a fish tank in my office that all the fish died in and damn mosquitoes got in the house and they were breeding it. So if I'm going to willing to throw this in my own fish tanks, you know that it's safe. I'm talking my indoor fish tanks here. Uh, no worries. Now, I want to talk a little bit about developing and improving fertility here, if I can, with you. I'm going to go real fast through my fertility program, but I want to start out with why this is such a good way to grow. If I do aquaponics and I'm growing soilless in an ebb and flow bed, I've already showed you guys in some of my videos, it does grow soil over time. 
but I'm starting out with something like leek or lava rock. If I need more nutrient, I got to put it in the water. If I put too much nutrient in the water, I kill the fish. You say add more fish, but if I add too many fish, I'm going to have to harvest fish before I want to. If I have too many fish and I have too much nutrient, I got to remove fish. Maybe I don't want to yet. It makes it difficult. When I have soil, I have a buffer. I have a buffer for fertility. I have a buffer for temperature. I have a buffer for pH. I have a battery for the water stopping. I got all of it. And the big thing is I got that fertility buffer, which means I can add fertility. So I can take my Dr. Earth fertilizer. I can throw my, my blood meal. I can grow. I can do all the things I do in a garden and I can take care of my soil. All right. And it's a great way to go. We're going to talk about worms in a bit there for the first person to make comments on it. Um, you should add compost and or mulch frequently. We should be feeding the soil. This is a gardening practice, but it's turbocharged here. The soil's always moist. The soil life web is always happy. If we keep adding compost and mulch to the top, even when we don't feel like we need it, a couple handfuls here and there, you have your mulch pile, your compost pile. It's been a while since you added any of your wicking beds. Fill up a five-gallon bucket or two. Go out, pull a couple weeds that you see. Pick your cucumbers, your tomatoes, whatever, and in each bed, just put some down on there and keep feeding the soil life web. This, again, is the secret sauce. This is why you guys look at my wicking beds in my aviary, and by September, my freaking pepper plants are honest to God over the top of my head, and they're bared down with peppers to where my friends call me the pepper whisperer. It's not the pepper whisperer. It's happy, healthy plants with lots of fertility, and don't ever... Let anybody tell you that it's not about the life in the soil. The life in the soil is more important than the organic matter content of the soil. With this, we have huge organic matter, but dead soil does not grow happy, healthy plants. You want living things in anything that you're growing in, bacteria, fungi, beneficial nematodes. You start having, pro this is another beauty, like you have a contained system. You start having some problems with the bad nematodes hitting your root vegetables or your tubers or something like that. What do you do? You order some beneficial nematodes. Well, when you put them in there, there's no place for them to go except in there. They're going to wipe the shit out of beetle grubs or any other problems. There's so much this solves if you will follow these procedures. Um, my four part, this is the four core part of my fertility program. I have all of these products linked in the audio notes. You can get about an hour after this ends. Um, GS Plant Foods Liquid Kelp. Now, when you go look that up today, if you do, the small 32-ounce bottle, which is plenty, is going to be out of stock. But the bigger bottle, and the stuff lasts forever, as long as you don't leave it sitting out in the sun and bake it, Um you can get that one or you can, you'll know what it is and you can buy anybody's liquid kelp. I don't care. And some people use kelp meal and mix their own water into it to save money. You can do that too. Kelp has a tremendous mineral profile and you're not going to have any real mineral deficiencies, even though I'm going to talk about a few in a bit, but use the GS plant foods liquid kelp. You can put it in the soil in a trench or you can spray it on the plants. Both of them work. I do both. I will advise you of this. If it's a leaf crop, and you're going to harvest it in the next couple of weeks, and you don't want it to look like it's got brown spots on it, it won't hurt nothing, but don't spray it within a couple of weeks. It'll have some time to wash off and what have you otherwise, because it will kind of go on there like a dye. But it also, like your plants, that like your tomatoes and all and your leaves, spray the underside of the plants with the liquid kelp. 
That's where they take the most of it in. Um, Garrett Juice, if you made me pick one thing, I'd tell you no, I get two. And it's the next one plus plus the uh, Garrett Juice. But Garrett Juice, I love. That's Dr. Howard Garrett. He's not really a doctor, though. He's the dirt doctor. It's just a name. He's not a doctor. As far as I know, he ain't got a Ph.D., M.D., nothing like that. But he's marketed himself as the dirt doctor. And he has a product called uh, Garrett Juice. It's made by a company called Medina. I like the easy button, so I buy it. You want to make it yourself, he gives you, and I have a link in the write-up today. He gives you the recipe to make. It's compost tea, molasses, fish emulsion. And Garrett Juice soil dunk and spray the plants with it. I, yes, take the kelp and the Garrett Juice and put them in the sprayer and spray one time. The next is Dr. Earth Premium Gold Fertilizer. This is a 444 all-organic fertilizer. Link in the show notes. It goes to Amazon. I have an Amazon link there. I get some money if you buy it. I appreciate it. But if you're an MSB member, we have a 10% discount direct deal with with uh, with Dr. Earth. They're good people. They make an exceptional product. That's why I picked them. I got the deal after I found the product, just to be clear. So the Dr. Earth Premium Gold, and then some form of mycorrhizal fungi. I don't have a recommended, recommended brand for you because I don't use it anymore. And I'm about to find one and try it because I'm putting some new systems in now. And even with that, I probably don't need it. Because why? Because it is fungi. It's a life form, and it reproduces itself. And unlike a big cornfield, I don't have to add it every year because it goes and dries out all through the winter or something like that. So my systems are loaded with fungi. And what I've gone to is I'm still trying to grow Kingstrophoria mushroom. Whenever I buy spawn, I, I take the spawn and I make some more spawn by just filling up a bucket with some wood chips. And I add that to my other beds. It's much more economical. But some form of fungi. The other thing is when I first started using the mycorrhizal fungi, I had not found the Dr. Earth product yet. The Dr. Earth uh, premium gold fertilizer and a lot of their other fertilizers have a whole host of beneficial fungi and bacteria in it, so you don't really need it. But that is my core four. I also look at some ways to supplement minerals, because even with the liquid kelp, You got to look at the liquid kelp like taking a daily vitamin. It's better that you have a good diet because if you stop taking the daily vitamin, it doesn't take long before all the good it did is gone, right? It's our it's our gap, stop gap. It's our make sure thing. So we can still end up with some mineral deficiencies. There's four things that are the most common problems with mineral deficiency for home growers, and You can be one or the other, and they're both in pairs, and a deficiency in one will cause a deficiency in both, even if it's there. You have to have both for the plant to be able to synthesize them. There are calcium and magnesium. You can have all the calcium in the world. You ain't got enough magnesium. You have a magnesium deficiency, plus your, can't, your plant can't get the calcium. So I have a CalMag product made by a company called Bloom City. It's really for aquaponics and hydroponics, but... If you mix it at the ratio and use it as a spray or a soil drench, the plant can instantly get it until you rebalance your system. And the other one is uh, Liquinox Iron and Zinc. It's a chelate. Again, the plant can instantly get it. Uh, I have a write-up you can read on my fertility program in the show notes today to learn more. But basically, you're going to see some really common system, uh, symptoms of chlorosis where the plant is not fully green. It begins to show veins. 
and you can tell which mineral it is based on whether the chlorosis is coming from the, the bottom up or the top down, and it doesn't matter if I see any of it. I, I do this like a, a short-term treatment. I give them both, and I haven't had to do it in a long time. Buying all this shit out of the gate, you may not want to do it. It can be kind of expensive if you do it that way. You see the problem, you know what to get. But once you have it, a little bit of this stuff is enough to get through these these mineral shortages. You keep it in a cool, dark place on the shelf. Calcium, magnesium, iron, and zinc are fundamental elements. They don't go bad. They're not living things. So that bottle will last you as long as you know you choose to, to use it. Longer term for your minerals, azomite or green sand, highly recommend both of them. Make it part of your soil mix. But what I usually do with it, that top cap layer, I mix it in just the top cap layer, and you have a trickle-down effect over time. And I use both of them. I have links to both of them in the show notes. That way you can look at them and see what they are. You can also use rock dust. I think somebody's pointing that out right now. That's that's fine as well. I Even though I have links to the azomite, which is a type of rock dust, and the green sand, which is mine from Ocean Floor, I don't recommend you use my links. They're for small amount of product because they're heavy and have to ship in the mail. Check your local garden centers, et cetera. You're going to save money buying that stuff locally. If you can get the green sand but not the azomite, that's fine. The green sand's great. Get the azomite but not the green sand, that's fine. You get some other form of crushed rock minerals or something, that's fine. I don't sweat any of this. There's a company called Texas Ready. I've known about them a long time. They sell seeds and other stuff. And damn it, I'm going to have to go buy some from them. They have a new mineral supplement that you mix with your fertilizer, be it conventional, organic. That's the most common mineral profile. I'd love to tell you what's in it. Lucinda over there uh, gave me a bag of it uh, at the uh, Exit and Build seminar right before my presentation with John Bush and Nicole Sauce on entrepreneurship. And I promptly, I promptly forgot about it. And left it there. So I'm going to go buy a bag from them instead of for asking for another free bag. Hopefully somebody found it and took it home and knew what to do with it. Uh, but I'm going to report on that later. Also, another additive I like to use. Again, this is more a kickstart in the beginning to put the life web into motion. Because with the compost and mulch and all the stuff we're doing long term, it goes away the need. But I like to put dry molasses right before I put my mulch down in my beds. And I sprinkle it just like I'm seeding grass seed or something. Not a ton of it. Uh, that'll make it less likely to attract ants. Ants can be a problem in wicking beds. I'm not going to go into how to solve that problem today. Maybe we'll do it as a follow-up on the next variety show. Worms. Somebody asked about worms. Yes. Worms, 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 worms. I'll talk about worm towers and my thoughts on that in a bit. But I just throw worms in my beds. And uh, the only time I have a bed without worms is when damn ants go in there and raid the bed and kill the worms. Beneficial nematodes are the enemy of fire ants. They're too small for the fire ant to find. They go inside the little eggs and grubs and kill them, and it's not a good place, and the ants are less likely to be there. I'm just not real good at keeping my nematode population up because one of the issues with beneficial nematodes is when they wipe out all of the prey, they go away. Right? And that's magnified in a wicking bed. So there are some trade-offs. Uh, but worms, definitely, I have two recommended sources of those for you to start with. Uh, everybody says Uncle Jim's Worm Farm, and they're fine. There's also a site called worms.com, and you get more worms for less money, 
And what do I say about money? Don't hate money or money will hate you. Uh, next, I want to give you my final thoughts on this. It's where I started out. This all sounds complex. You can learn all of it. You can build your first wicking bed today if you really want to, definitely this weekend. Once you build one, you'll understand how they work. You can look at my videos. You can learn more about all the different ways that I do them. You can come up with a design and a plan to build out as many as you need to grow your food for you. Maybe it takes you a season or two to put enough in to grow all your vegetables for your family. You'll buy once, you'll cry once. It'll last forever. It'll last forever. And if you look at mine and my big black um, cattle uh, stock tanks and you're like, those are ugly, you can facade them in. You can cover them up with plywood or reclaimed wood or whatever you want to do. You can paint them. You can put them behind something. You can plant bushes in front of them. You can do anything to make it look however you want. I am not the carpentry podcast. Maybe check into Toolman Tim for stuff like that. Uh, you can do – my buddy David, he's done his with, like, the rock that's, like, cut. So it looks like big cobblestones, but it's actually thin, and you mason it up. I've seen him do it with cedar and make it look absolutely gorgeous. You can make it look however you want. The technology is the same. But once you do it. And once you automate it, I'm just going to say this. Unless you're trying to grow a hippie commune or something or a small farm, how many tomatoes are you going to eat as a family a week? How many beans? How many cucumbers? How much lettuce? How much spinach? I'd say that the average family with nine uh, wicking beds over time put in is going to grow more food than they can eat with it. You know, or, I mean, to go cheaper, and there's no reason not to do it, IBCs, you know, IBCs, and a lot of times I'll see people will get IBCs and they're really worried about what's been in them. If it's not like some sort of chemical, like I've seen some really cheap ones because they had glue in them. And I mean like Elmer's glue. It's not toxic. You know, if you're going to use it for a fish system, it's kind of really a pain in the butt to get it completely cleaned out. But you cut them in half, fill them up with dirt. You don't care. Your freaking worms and stuff will eat them, Right. That is, I'm going to put this up. I, pro, I might come back to you. I'm just going to put it up on the screen right now because I love when somebody answers the question for me. I'm not going to tell you guys on audio what it is. You have to look it up and find it. So somebody asked a question and somebody answered for me. That answer is correct. I'll Maybe I'll add a little bit to it. Oh, somebody else added another answer. Yeah. I'll add, I'll add, I'll add some more on that in a bit with just some reality. We'll get to it. Anyway, I want to go through, through some stuff here. I just want you to understand, yes, this does cost more money to do this way, but what's the value of your time? What's the value of your time? What good is your garden if all your plants die? What good is your What is more valuable, a tomato plant that makes six tomatoes for you or a tomato plant that makes 60? What's the financial difference in that? How much time do you really have? Again, put me back on the house I grew up in my teens in and spent a lot of time in my younger years at visiting. Give me Pennsylvania Dutch country soil. Give me a quarter acres that anybody can dig a hole in 10 feet deep before they hit a rock. Give me zone six USDA and give me the time that I had as a child or the time my grandfather had in his retirement. And I probably ain't going to make a wicking bed. I, me, I probably would because I'd be putting aquatic systems in and then why not at them? But if it was just a subsistence gardening, what we had when I was a teenager 
worked for us. But here in Texas or in the small properties I've owned in the past, man, I have to tell you guys, nothing beats this. Nothing I've done over the years when it comes to feeding yourself, especially with annuals or growing large amounts of herbs for teas and things like that and just having it just work. I have a basically a four by four wicking bed, nothing but comfrey because it's one of the most valuable medicinals and fertility plants that we have. And if I wanted to make money out of that, I could easily pay for that whole bed in one season just selling root cuttings. That's just not my bag. I, I do better doing other things. You can make this stuff pay for itself. And for most of you, just in the food production, in how much you'll get versus how much you would have gotten doing it the hard way, they'll pay for themselves in a season or two. And then it's all gravy. That's my philosophy with any project you build. I want to make that project pay for itself to net zero in qu as quickly as possible. Six months is great. Three months is better. Two years is good enough. If that thing has a 20-year life cycle and it's paid for itself in two years, and I'm talking all the fertility aids, everything all in, I got 18 years of free food out of it. That's the ROI I'm looking for. With that, let's go ahead and uh, take some of your questions. Um, Gary Flinchbaugh says, do you fill them within an inch of the top of the soil and then allow the water to drain down to the top of your water reservoir? Colin Austin's original design to pull O2 to the roots. I kind of hit on that. There are times that I'll do that, but not really, and I've not found it necessary. And if there's no root O2 deficit if you do things the way that I do, and then you got to remember something. Most of my wicking beds are tied into aquatic systems that have fish, Oxygen rich, and even if you didn't, if you're pumping water in from a reservoir and it's overflowing for a time and you're doing that every day, your water is bringing plenty of O2 to the party. And if you were really worried about it, you could just throw, like I said, a little uh, heme uh, aquarium style uh, air pump and a couple stones off of it and just put it, you know, Protect the pump so that it doesn't overheat. It needs to be shaded and, and not get super wet in a rainstorm. And those things last for years. I've got some running my tanks behind me here. They've been running five years now. Ahim is the brand. If I remember, I'll add that. And then you got lots of oxygen in your water, which is always good. But if you have a loose, friable soil I'm talking about building, you don't have to worry about that. Um, next, uh, Built by Ross says, I built four by eight wicking beds. There's a picture of my posted on MeWe. Okay. I want to check out your MeWe. John Paul Jones says, what zones do you secure? I don't know what that means. You want to add, if you're still here, John, you can add to it. I don't really know what that means. I don't remember what I said that might have preempted that. Do you have a method to get rid of ants? I have them all over my property, very much a nuisance. Okay, first of all, beneficial nematodes in your wicking beds, will plumb wipe out ants as they show up. They just don't have a really great shelf life, so keep them on hand and really easy. Um, but if you treat them every year, they have other benefits, or maybe every other year, and you'll reduce the preponderance of it. The other thing you can do is you can use orange oil. You just have to be careful if you're using a system with fish in it, so I generally don't. And you might want to use a little bit less than you normally do, and it's about two tablespoons to the gallon 
with soak. And what you do if you have them in a wicking bed, orange oil in the ground where it has room to dissipate is not a problem. And you usually mix it with some uh, liquid molasses and some compost tea, and you kill the ants, and the soil organisms come in and eat what's left, and then you get actually more fertility. But if you heavily water a wicking bed or any container with orange oil, you can hit too much and actually kind of cause some problems for your plants. So what you do is a very small amount, and you just keep the watering can out by where they are, and you just wet the top. And then like a couple days later, you just wet the top again. And you keep doing it, and either you'll kill enough and eventually get the queen, and then the whole thing dies off, or they're like, you know what? This sucks, and they leave. I've also done this, and it's worked. Remember I talked about flooding the wicking bed? You can flood your wicking bed for like an hour and then unflood it, and all your wicking bed gets is a really good watering, and your plants get a little bit of the coolness to their their roots, and then they get that oxygen that was asked about earlier as that water pulls back out and overflows wherever it's going. You don't want to do this a lot because it will take away some nutrient with it, but you know what? Ants don't like it. And I've, I've flooded a bed once or twice and had ants abandon it because they're like, oh, this is a bad place. You think about why they go into a wicking bed. It's nirvana, right? It's loose, friable soil. It's always moist. Yay! Then there's another method if you're willing to do it. And it's a toxic method, but it's a very limited toxic method. You get Amdro, which is a toxic ant poison. I know what you're going to say, but just hear me out here. If you have this problem, especially those of you who are allergic and you can't afford to get bit. Remember I said yesterday, the, the synthetic versus natural quadlemma. Sometimes you got to do what works, and then you limit the damage. You take a pot bottle, and you put about a tablespoon of the Amdro. You want the stuff that's like a pellet. You don't want the powder that stinks real bad, that gets on everything. You want the little pellets that they eat, and they feed to each other, and they feed the queen. Put about a tablespoon in the bottle. Lay the bottle on its side in the bed near where the ants are. They'll find it. Maybe you can give them a little stick bridge up into the bottle. They'll go in the bottle. They'll get it because they think they're robbing something. They like to rob. And they'll take it in their bed. It'll wipe out the colony eventually. If all the amdro goes away and the ants are still there, put one more tablespoon in it. You can put a little bit of sugar in there, too, to kind of tempt them. But I don't like to do that if I have to resort to this because then you're more likely to tempt some beneficials into there. But with this method, they're only going to take what they want to eat. They're going to feed it to each other. It's going to dissipate and go away. It has a relatively short health, uh, half-life as far as these type of toxins go. Uh, and so those are your multiple ways. Somebody's going to say dump boiling water and there you kill all your plants. You know, and you're, you're throwing your temperature gradient off too. Uh, just a thought on that. Uh, Amostel said, have you thought about adding a worm tower in the soil level of the wicking bed design? Having composting worms in the systems allows for them to be self-fertilizing. You can do that, but I found no need for it. Remember what we've built this system on? We built this system on half compost. So all I do is the comp, you know, the red wigglers that are compost worms that don't live in the soil, they live in the beds fine. So you can put an, you can take up more of your square footage with a, with a composting worm tower if you really want to. Or you just throw them in there, and if you're adding the mulch and the top dressing and whatever, and if you want to start adding your compostables, your your kitchen waste and all, when you go out to harvest your garden, just do what I do with the big bigger gardens, pull the mulch back, 
and throw your banana peels or whatever and put the mulch back over it and your worms will take care of it from there. If you have a hard time keeping your population of true compost worms, i.e. red wigglers up, just put night crawlers in there. And if you, if you don't need a ton of worms and worms are a life form, they self-replicate. First of all, in a good wicking bed, absent fire ants, worms will show up. And if you have compost you're making, there's probably worm castings in your compost. All right. But you can literally go to Walmart and buy, a, you know, a box of 18 worms for like two bucks and, and put 10 worms in every wicking bed and, and they will take it from there. Um, please comment on a worm tower in the system. I added them to my system. They work really well. Like I said, if you want to do it, you can, but, uh, I just put them in there. I don't use a tower, I guess, is the difference. Uh, in fact, I think they're very beneficial because they will get around and down in, and they'll even go in the water a little bit and help clean out your filter down there as well. Can you use the plastic carrier that planted plants come in a box store free from garden section instead of burying PVC? Yeah, I bet. Um, you're t- she's probably talking, Rachel's probably talking about the ones they hold like 10 of like the Bonnie plant cups, it's either 10 or 12. If you do it, I would turn them upside down and put them in that way, and they probably will support the weight. They probably won't collapse under it. Even if they do, they're going to have spaces, and why not throw them in there? I, I want to give you a jack tip as well, though. Um, those free uh, carriers from the box stores that the Bonnie's plants sit in, you know what fits in them? exactly like it was made to carry them. Remember when you as a kid, you went to the kegger parties and you paid two bucks and you got a red solo cup to put your beer in. If you lost your damn cup or broke it, you had to buy another cup because they didn't believe you paid your two bucks, even though the guy knew you those solo cups, they're great for starting plants and they're super cheap and they fit exactly perfectly in the standard body size thing. So I get them. I've never used them for what Rachel's saying. I think they would work for that. But I always get them whenever I go to the store. If they have some laying there, I'll take them. They don't care. Ask if you're worried. And uh, I use them because that way, when you have all your plants started in them and you need to move them around, it's really easy to do. And even in my ebb and flow plant starting system, you can just sit them right in the four by, four by two trays. And since they have holes in them, you're, you can sub-irrigate and you can just take them out as you need them to move them around. And then here's the one that if you were wondering on the audio what I was talking about, Adam said, why do you launch your shows at random times? Because I have a random life, dude. That's why. Uh, uh, it, this is why I'm not on radio. I hear from radio people still to this day. I guess I ain't told them all the truth about why I don't work with them yet. It ain't because I think they suck. Because the radio places are like, well, I'll tell you what, man. Here's what we can do. We'll put you on the radio. All you have to do is give your approval to syndicate your content. I syndicate your ass off. You run your own beat button though, right? Yeah, we can do the beat button. That's no problem. All right. We need your shows to be 47 minutes and 13 seconds or something like that so we can fit our commercials around them. I ain't doing it. We're on right now an hour and 18 minutes. I ain't taking a break. I've went straight through with you because I have stuff to teach you. Tomorrow's show might be 45 minutes. It might be an hour and a half. I don't know. I'm going to have a guest on. How good is the guest? What are we learning? Are y'all digging it? Do you like it? Can I get more information for you from that guest than they plan on? Because I realize I'm talking to someone that's really smart. Do I need to get rid of that guest because they're not really that good? That doesn't have a problem, but sometimes it does. What's going on this morning? 
did my grandma, did my granddaughter have a temper tantrum and a meltdown this morning or was she happy when she got here? Did something break out on my property? This is nothing to do. And I'm not, I'm not picking on Adam. I'm just telling you the truth because you asked, right? You don't bust your ass. You don't work your ass off to live life on your terms and then turn around and live in a way that's not in your own best interest or the best interest of people you're trying to serve. If I set a schedule rigidly, Mondays I start at 10, Tuesdays I start at 11, Thursdays I start at this, I run exactly this period of time, the quality of what I can do for you will go down. If you want to be in a live stream, I want you here. I like you here. I love doing live streams, guys. It's made my show better. It's made me a better podcaster. God bless you, and thank all of you that show up in the middle of your day to be part of them. Thank you so much. But you know what? I want to keep this show what it's been since I started. For those that don't know, I started this show in my car back in 2008 with a little recorder, not much bigger than this remote control right here, that was a $30 recorder and a $20 headset, and I built it into a quarter-million-member uh, community. And I did that because I didn't worry about stuff like, oh, I need to stare down a certain time or whatever. Again, I'm not picking on the question. I'm giving you the answer. And I, I just encourage all of you in your lives, don't do things because everybody says that's the way to do them. If you're going to bust your ass, build a community, build your business, then you live your life on your terms. This makes me think, back in, I guess it was 2011, 2012, somewhere around there, I was, for the second or third time, blessed that the people that run Liberty Forum for the Free State Project said, will you come up and present? And I said, yes, and I went up there. And about a week before, and I was supposed to do a presentation on a thing. I don't remember what it was so long ago, and I had that all ready to go. And they said, well, we still want you to do your presentation on a thing, but we lost one of our keynotes. Will you keynote for us? And a dude, I don't remember his real name now, but they call him Ron Paul's Giant, was the guy that asked. And I said, I'll do it, but I want you to know something. I'm going to present in a T-shirt and jeans. Now, what you have to understand about this is that they have, that's a normal thing up there. But the keynote during this big fancy dinner you usually have your keynote speaker wearing a suit and you got a bunch of like important people coming in from legislature and stuff wearing suits. I'm going to wear a t-shirt and jeans. And he says, t-shirt and jeans like the boss. He sends it. And he even said when he introduced me, he said, then after I sent it, I was kind of joking, but I realized, oh, he's serious. And what I said to those people before I gave that keynote speech was, you don't bust your ass to live on your own terms, only to live on somebody else's terms. I was honored to give that keynote speech. It's one of the highlights of my career. Maybe someday they'll ask me to do it again. I'll, I'll you know, unless there's some reason I can't get up there, I'll do it. But I'll always do it on my own terms. And I do that to set an example because so should you. So I'm not picking on the guy that asks. Cutting ant control. Please advise. Cutting ants would be the same as other ants. Uh, that I already gave you. I don't see any more all caps, so I think we're done handling your questions. Yeah, we're back to why do you launch shows at random times. That added 10 minutes to the show. Sorry about that. Um, I do want to remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that I do, you can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's right, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And uh, 
If you go to tspaz.com, you'll find stuff there that I own, I recommend, and I wouldn't recommend it if I wouldn't buy it again. Today's item of the day is the A.M. Leonard Garden Trowel. You can find it at tspaz.com or in the show notes from today's show once the live stream ends. This is a product I've brought around a bunch, and I've only sold a handful of them. A lot of times if I bring something around and I want one, I buy it before I run it because I'll sell out. I literally sell out items on Amazon. This one I'll sell a dozen here and there. And I know why y'all don't buy it. It's expensive. Just like a wicking bed. That's why I brought it today. 28 bucks for a garden trowel. I should have brought mine in. It's hanging on a couple screws out near my garden because I use it all the time. Well, every garden trowel I've ever owned, but this one's a piece of shit, falls apart. Uh, usually they have some kind of coating on the handle, get sticky, gummy, cracks, whatever. Dogs eat them. This is made out of cast solid aluminum. I've had mine for four years now. I'll never buy anything but this one. Check it out. And, you know, you can spend 10 bucks, 12 bucks for a garden trowel and you can throw it away every year. Or as long as you don't lose it, you can buy one for 28 bucks and keep it forever. And I, when I read the reviews on it, there was a dude said he had one for years. He lost it. So begrudgingly, he bought another one. Then the next year, he completely wiped out his pile of compost and found it was buried under the compost for about two years and it was still good. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. I like lifelong purchases. So remember, you can always support us doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. You can also become a member. And I'll just tell you, I put together a resources page. Maybe some of y'all saw it. Maybe you didn't. All kinds of great resources like today's show and other resources. For my exit and build strategy uh, seminar stuff I did this weekend. And the website or the page is the survivalpodcast.com forward slash exit, E-X-I-T. There may or may not be, you'll have to go look, but why would I say it if there wasn't? There may or may not be a discount code there for my membership program. And there's also a lot of other really cool stuff. With that, I enjoyed talking to you guys today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys being here with me. I really meant it when I said all of y'all that come into the live feeds, thank you so much. You make them, you make them great, guys. You really do. You make me a better podcaster. Uh, this podcast without its community would just be another podcast. It's something special because of y'all. Thank you for being with me. With that's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. They gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way